Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Jamie Goodall, author of Pirates and Privateers from Long Island Sound to Delaware Bay. Jamie Goodall is the author of Pirates and Privateers from Long Island Sound to Delaware Bay. What's the difference between a pirate and a privateer? Uh, that's a great question, and it's one I get all the time. Uh, it can be a pretty complicated answer depending on who you ask, but what I taught Pirates of the Atlantic to my students uh, previously, I just broke it down very simply into two parts. It depends on your perspective, and it depends on whether or not you have what's called a letter of mark or, or a um, commission from a government official. And what I mean by perspective is, say you're an Englishman and you've preyed upon a Spanish ship. Well, according to the English, you're kind of a hero. You've brought money in from those terrible Spanish uh, individuals and you're bringing it into the empire. So they would look at you more as a privateer, uh, which is legally sanctioned, whereas the Spanish, of course, don't recognize that letter of mark, um, don't recognize that commission. And so they would view that individual as a pirate. And so it got really complicated in the legal system as the empires kind of go back and forth between being allies, enemies. Uh, so one day you might be a pirate, one day you might be a privateer. And often there's a really fine line between the two. So it was very easy to cross from privateering to piracy. Talk a little bit more about letters of mark. Could, who, who were the authorities that issued those? Initially, those came directly from the crown. For example, the Elizabethan sea dogs uh, of the 16th century those individuals would get their letters of mark or their commissions directly from Queen Elizabeth I. By the time we get more into the colonial era, the 17th century uh, particularly, we start to see a shift of that being kind of passed off in the instructions to colonial governors, granting them and some of their deputies the authority to grant those commissions. And what's really interesting uh, from my research, from my PhD to now, is that many of the governors may not have had um, specific instructions to be able to offer letters of mark, but whenever they were caught and accused of supporting piracy, they would say, no, I uh, assumed that that authority was implied by this part of my uh letter. So it they tended to have authority, but it kind of waxed and waned. So did when you were doing your research, did you actually come across any of these letters of Mark? I did. Um, and I think actually I have a few saved um, for my upcoming book, but they're really interesting because a letter of Mark, you have to have the name of the ship or the vessel that's going to be licensed. You have to have the name of all crew members and the captain, as well as the owners of the ship. So that way, if anything goes wrong, there are uh, people to be held accountable. Uh, although, you know, that didn't always work out so well for the government. But uh, the letters of Mark are very explicit. Now, uh your book covers Long Island. Uh, 
Sound down to Delaware Bay. Why did you pick that particular region? So my first book was on the Chesapeake Bay, and that's primarily because of the region that I'm living in. I'm living in the Chesapeake. But in my PhD research, I found that a lot of the 17th into the 18th century piracy was really centered and focused on areas like New York City and Philadelphia. Um, so this mid-Atlantic region was kind of a, I think what Mark Hanna calls a nest of pirates. And a lot of that has to do, of course, with the merchant class of those areas compared to uh, the more agricultural centers in the South. So I just felt like it was a really good area to have more access to resources to support my research than I might have in other regions. Now you mentioned Philadelphia is one of the key uh, port towns uh, for pirates. Uh, were, were pirates operating openly out of a city like Philadelphia? Definitely, well, at least, into the 18th century. Uh, so for example, in 1699, this is three years after the passage of the 1696 Navigation Act. Um, the idea was that there would be a suppression of pirates. And so some of the authority of the Pennsylvania governor, uh, as well as the New Jersey governor, but the Pennsylvania governor specifically, uh, had a lot of their power stripped from them because previous governors had been so friendly to pirates, uh, examples being Benjamin Fletcher, who's more often associated with New York, but he established a, a nice little connection with pirates in Pennsylvania. But William Markham, he was a, a big proponent of piracy, but in his mind, it wasn't piracy, it was privateering, to the degree that uh, one of the uh, members of Henry Avery's crew, a man named James Brown, married Markham's daughter, Anne, um, and so he openly welcomed his son-in-law, knowing full well his piratical background. And uh, the judge of the Admiralty Court, Colonel Quarry, actually complained to the Board of Trade and uh, Council to that basically these pirates are just walking the streets openly, proudly. Their pockets are full of stolen money. And they're greeted as heroes among the inhabitants of the colony. And so he found that to be a significant problem in terms of establishing um, more uh, efficient trade mechanisms. So what was Markham's relationship to, to William Penn? Because if you have somebody like Markham in a position where he's friendly to, uh, to pirates, uh, how did William Penn as a proprietor respond to that? Uh, from what I gather, a number of complaints went to um, William Penn, but much of his viewpoint of, of the piracy, I think, just came down to this issue of perspective, like who do you believe, uh, which is very difficult, uh, because at the time, pirates are bringing in a significant amount of money to colonies like Pennsylvania and New York, and so keeping that merchant class happy especially was beneficial to proprietors like William Penn. Um, that's not to say Penn was necessarily openly accepting of pirates. Um, so it, it's kind of a complicated relationship in terms of wanting to maintain his authority over the colony as opposed to allowing it to become a royal colony under the uh, direct reporting of the crown. Uh, while also balancing the needs of his inhabitants. So uh, Markham got himself into trouble quite a few times, but he managed to get himself out each and every time. 
And I think a lot of the issues uh, for Penn came down to a lot of anti-Quakerism in the area. And so those who were anti-pirate also tended to be anti-Quaker, which I found to be a very interesting relationship when I was doing my research. Well, how did the Quakers feel about the pirates? That's the thing. I would have expected that they would have been anti-pirate themselves, given their stance on violence. Uh, but it seems that the Quakers were fairly supportive of pirates and, and their activities. Um, one of the complaints by Colonel Quarry, for example, was that uh, the Quakers just let the pirates out of jail, that, that if they did get convicted, they just got kind of a slap on the wrist. So there was no real punishment. And so he kind of blamed the Quakers uh, for the um, nest of pirates in Pennsylvania because he believed that their lax attitude enticed more pirates to come to the area. So uh, if these pirates were operating out of Philadelphia, where, where were they going then to uh, prey on shipping? So they kind of went all over. A number of them, of course, operated throughout the Caribbean, which is sort of the general area we know the most of, like uh, frequently in terms of you know Pirates of the Caribbean films. Uh, so Jamaica, Bermuda, those are some prime areas for them. Um, they are also making their way to the South Seas uh, over near India and China uh, because the Mughal emperor is fabulously wealthy at this point. And there are very wealthy individuals who will take an annual pilgrimage. Uh, the uh, emperor would ship his treasure from one area to another. So it was a lot more money, a lot more direct access to gold and jewels and silks, the things that we associate with pirate stealing. Um, whereas in the Atlantic, they're more likely stealing things like cotton, uh, indigo, they might steal timber, any sort of material good that a merchant ship is carrying that they think they can sell for uh, a return, that's what they're doing. So it's kind of this interesting dichotomy between the two oceans. Now, you talk in the book a lot about Madagascar. How did Madagascar become a pirate haven? Well, Frederick Phillips felt he was a very prominent merchant in New York, and he felt that Madagascar was a very nice stopping point uh, for trade from the Indian Ocean back to the Atlantic. And it gave people uh, an opportunity to trade with the Malagasy people of the island. And so he sent his uh, friend or associate, Adam Baldridge, to Madagascar, specifically St. Mary's Island, and basically, he encouraged Baldridge to set up a pirate haven, a space where pirates could come, relax, take a break before making their way back to the colonies. So when, when pirates would return to, say, Philadelphia or New York City, how were they received when they, when they came into town with all, all this treasure? In the 17th century, they are welcomed with open arms. They, and a lot of them are actually members of the community. So it's not unex uh, unexpected, you know, that, that if your father has gone pirating and is back and he's brought you all this wonderful stuff, you're probably not going to be that upset. Um, and so they're welcomed with open arms. They're celebrated. They're accepted. Some of them end up holding very important political positions. Um, and so that's 
kind of the 17th century, but by the time we get into the early 18th century, there is a shifting attitude towards pirates. And I think a lot of that has to do with the establishment of new legitimate trade networks and sort of this push towards free trade and more of a revolutionary spirit that we're starting to see in the colonies. Now, in the late 1600s, Pennsylvania and, and, and the British-run New York were still fairly young colonies. Uh, what mm -hmm. impact did this piracy have on the economic development of these colonies? I don't have exact figures, but from my understanding of the, the resources I've had access to, I think it was fairly significant. Um, at one point, I know enough money was brought into New York City uh, for the development of whole neighborhoods. Uh, so it lent itself to uh, housing development, which then brought more uh, people to the city. So it helped facilitate growth there. And of course, the more people you bring in, the more money you can bring in, uh, the more laborers you have. And so I would say that it was a pretty significant impact. Now, when the, when the British took over the, what became the New York colony in the 1660s from the Dutch, did uh, did the uh, approach to piracy change? Were the Dutch friendly to piracy as well? The Dutch weren't necessarily openly friendly to piracy, but I don't think that they really had much of an opinion one way or another. The Dutch were very interested in free and open trade, which was very different than say England or Spain or even France. Uh, those nations wanted a very tight imperial stranglehold. They wanted to control the functions of trade. They wanted to establish monopolies, whereas the Dutch were just, hey, we want to trade with all people. And I think from that perspective, um, they didn't have as much involvement with piracy as maybe other nations did, particularly England. Well, let's talk about one of the pirates. Uh, some of these, some of the names we all know, uh, Captain William Kidd was one of them. Who was he? So William Kidd is an interesting guy. He was a captain of a ship called the Blessed William and his crew mutinies uh, because they want to um, turn pirate and he does not want to. And so he finds himself in New York at a very tumultuous period. And so he gets himself into the good graces of the newly established government and manages to get himself a commission to uh, basically uh, turn himself into a pirate hunter. And one of his objectives, of course, was to try to find and arrest the men of the Blessed William uh, to kind of take some revenge. Now, it's really unclear as to William Kidd's complicity or innocence, but at some point in his travels through the Indian Ocean, uh, word gets out through the newspapers that Kidd has turned pirate, uh, even though he technically had a commission. And I think that those rumors, uh, particularly how they uh, passed through London newspapers like wildfire, uh, really just turned public sentiment against him very quickly. And so he didn't have much of a chance from that point on, even if he was innocent. Allegedly, when he came back to the colonies, he went up and down the coast to bury his treasure. This is where we get the idea that pirates buried treasure. Um, Gardner's Island is said to be one location of kids' treasure. Uh, and so he, but initially he's able to come back from his earlier voyages and settled down, he and his wife, Sarah Kidd, have a fantastic house on Wall Street. 
And they're very high echelon society members until those rumors start. And upon his final return, he is arrested. She is arrested, actually, uh, for complicity with pirates. And he is ultimately executed for his crimes. Now, we talked about uh, Governor Markham in Philadelphia and his attitudes towards piracy. Was uh, What was the governor in New York uh, approaching? <laughs> you mentioned Benjamin Fletcher. Who was he? Benjamin Fletcher, he was kind of like the pirate go-to guy. He was very openly and adamantly supportive of piracy. But again, he framed it as being privateering and framed it in a way that tried to make it seem like he was doing nothing wrong. Uh, but he was very uh, involved with getting a number of pirate vessels, uh, the funding to get started. Uh, he would often take bribes from the pirates to allow them to enter port and fence their loot to careen and uh, resupply their ships. And so pirates kind of word of mouth got to know that Benjamin Fletcher was very friendly to pirates. And so a number of them started to flock to that area to fence their loot. Were, were there any consequences for Fletcher for, for being this open? Fletcher was removed from power at one point, um, and I am trying to remember off the top of my head what happened to him after that, uh, but he definitely did not get away scot-free. Now, uh, when we look at some of the economic impacts, uh, certainly the, these men are coming back and they're visiting in the community, taverns and inns and, and other establishments. Uh, how, how did their wealth flow through the communities? Well, as I mentioned, they're stealing goods to then turn around and fence to get money for themselves. And so they're helping the local community by bringing those goods to port because they're able to then sell them or auction them off at a fraction of the um, initial price. Because for pirates, there's no matter how much they sell it for, that's profit. Right. So they're not losing anything if they don't price it at X. So that's very helpful in terms of allowing businesses to replenish their supplies, um, individuals who may want to get involved with business. But also, of course, they're earning money for this, which then they reinfuse into the economy by partaking in libations at taverns and enjoying themselves at the local inns. Uh, and many of them, actually, uh, we have evidence that they took their loot and would then establish their own homesteads. They would buy property, which increased you know, the value of the area, and build homes. Um, so then they became permanent members of that society, which allowed them to further uh, influence economic development. And you mentioned in the book that uh, as a result of the pirates bringing in hard specie, that there are more silversmiths than lawyers in some of these communities. Yes. Yeah, and that was one fact that I found really interesting because when you're teaching or learning about early American history, one of the quips you always get is that America is known as a litigious society because of those early um, lawyer establishments. And so to have more silversmiths than lawyers, I found that to be a very interesting piece of information uh, because it's so unusual and it's very very suspicious. So I don't know how they thought that they would not be um, caught for uh, fencing loot and being able to use that pirate money. 
So when a ship's crew decided to turn pirate, uh, that, that would tend to up, upend whatever authority structure would be on the ship. So how did they decide who was in charge and what they were going to do? Uh, that, so that varies kind of from ship to ship. Um, for example, some ships, if there's a mutiny and they want to get rid of the captain that's there, sometimes they already had a man in mind that they wanted to nominate as captain. Uh, but for the most part, based on what evidence we do have from pirate ships, there, there seems to be more of an egalitarian sort of social equality happening on board. And so people would vote. And uh, from our understanding of a lot of these pirate articles, uh, the captain was often captain in name only in the sense that uh, he was kind of there to direct the crew during attack. Uh, to basically facilitate and make sure everybody's doing their job as opposed to, say, Blackbeard, who kind of controlled every aspect of the ship. Uh, so they would share the loot, they would divvy it up equally, um, and they would take votes on all manner of uh, things, such as uh, what ships to attack, which routes to take, where to stop to fence the loot, where to careen, all those sorts of things. And so... Uh, it seemed to be kind of, I think Marcus Redeker referred to them as floating democracies. And that is definitely true of a lot of them. But we do have evidence, of course, that there are other kinds of ships where captains made themselves captain and just managed through their charisma to gather a crew around them. Some examples, of course, Blackbeard, Calico Jack Rackham, uh, Steed Bonnet, who is one of my favorite pirates. Um, they're able to bring a crew around them, and so they kind of run things in a way that's a little different. So you mentioned Blackbeard. In the book, you say that he was allegedly a patron of the Blue Anchor Tavern in Philadelphia. Uh, are there records of, of uh, the, somebody like a Blackbeard attending a tavern? Um, it's difficult to say. Records are scarce. Uh, primarily because a lot of times pirates are using aliases. Um, for example, I think uh, Henry Avery used the alias Bridgman. Um, and so even if we had, say, a tavern document or an inn uh, sheet that had patrons, we may not know if there was one of those pirates there. And a lot of pirates, we just don't know their names. The only reason we know the names of many of these men is because they got caught or they just so happened to get their name out there. Um, most pirates wanted to be anonymous, so. What was the relationship of this type of piracy with slavery? It's a very complicated and um, I would say kind of devastating relationship in the sense that, uh, again, early historiography has portrayed pirates as these floating democracies. And they point to the fact that some ships like Blackbeard's were said to have had black men on board. Um, and so that they point to that as evidence that uh, they viewed uh, Africans as equals. The difficulty is though, that we don't always have information about are those men serving that ship willingly? Were they forced into labor on that ship? So it gets a little tricky. And the other half of that is by portraying all pirates as these floating democracies, we sort of overlook the fact that pirates were very ardent participants in the transatlantic trade of enslaved peoples. They were openly attacking 
slave ships uh, and they would treat enslaved humans as commodities. Um, so it's a mixed sort of situation in terms of it depends on the pirate. So if they were capturing slave ships and, and would they then resell the enslaved people? Absolutely. Uh, I know that Barbados at one point received a significant number of enslaved people from a, a single purchase. Uh, I forget the pirate's name. And then Jamaica um, was another area that frequently would receive enslaved Africans from, from pirates. And the colonies benefited as well. They may not have uh, received as many enslaved people as the Caribbean, but uh, pirates absolutely went through the Caribbean and, and the Atlantic uh, East Coast to to sell enslaved people. Uh, you mentioned the documentation is, is scarce for a lot of pirates for a lot of obvious reasons, but do we know uh, any sense of like the demographics of, of who who were on these ships? Generally, we're seeing a lot of Englishmen, um, which is, I think, why so much of pirate scholarship has focused on the English Atlantic. Um, but a lot, so they were often referred to as motley crews and enemies of all nations. And I think a lot of that has to do with just mixed uh, ethnicity or nationalities on board. Um, but they had to have some means of communicating together. And primarily, at least from the records we have, all men uh, sometimes boys, uh, as young as 10, I think, is the er, like youngest person uh, we have record for turning pirate in the Atlantic. And um, they were just average people more often than not. They would come from maritime backgrounds, so they might have worked on ships like merchant ships. They may have been in the Royal Navy. They may have just worked on the docks. Um, some of them were um, victuallers, which are the people who were kind of supplying ships, so providing food stuff and any sort of materials you need to make a long voyage. Uh, and so one of and one of the prized positions on the ship, uh, every pirate tried to have one on board was a surgeon, uh, given the sort of danger of their profession. Uh, but more often than not, the surgeon would have been an impressed member as opposed to a, a willing participant. Now, another pirate from this era was Thomas Tu. Who was he? Thomas Tu is probably one of the pirates of the Atlantic, sort of Indian Ocean area, that made some of the most money of the time period. Uh, he is operating during... So the golden age kind of runs from about 1650 to maybe 1730s. But um, the more narrow definition of the golden age is from about 1690 to 1720. And two is operating in that particular golden age. And that's where we have individuals like uh, Anne Bonny and Mary Reed and Blackbeard and Steed Bonnet, those very infamous people. And two was kind of a the the pirate bad boy, if you will. If you have Steed Bonnet, who is the gentleman pirate, well, two's kind of the opposite of that. Uh, what were type of enforcement mechanisms? So today we're used to the Coast Guard and, and, and uh, extensive law enforcement at sea. Uh, was the Royal Navy actively involved in policing the, the coast of North America? Not for a long time. Um, 
primarily because the Royal Navy was preoccupied. I mean, this was a period of almost incessant warfare. So the Royal Navy is often tied up in other um, battles. And so they're not really focusing their efforts on eradicating piracy. And this is why a lot of colonies turned to pirates uh, and claimed them as privateers because they would kind of use them as a security force. Uh, so in terms of enforcing anti-piracy acts, uh, there eventually one, one ship uh, is sent from England to basically guard the entirety of the East Coast. And that's, that's impossible to eradicate piracy with a single uh, man of war. And so their early efforts to, to stamp piracy out were not very effective. Um, would that change in the early 1700s? Because the golden age of piracy eventually comes to an end. And, and did the Royal Navy had to have a role in that? It does. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that by the time we get to that time, the 17 teens and 1720s, there is sort of a lull in terms of animosity, uh, at least open animosity towards each other, these uh, different nations. And I think they kind of come together or come to an understanding that pirates are affecting all of them. Um, by that point, England realized the pirates are not just attacking the Spanish or the French or the Dutch anymore. They are attacking us as well. And so it was kind of a, an eye opener for them that maybe we should have a concerted effort together to get rid of pirates. And the Royal Navy was definitely a part of that. Um, also, punishments became... Um, much more severe. Uh, you see a lot more hangings at this point, whereas earlier, uh, a lot of times it would just be jail time or they would just be let free. Um, a lot more pirates are being taken from the colonies uh, and not being tried there. They're instead being tried in England, which is almost always a death sentence for them. Uh, why were they tried in England? Were the colonial courts authorized to try pirates? Not technically, although many of the colonies had their own versions, or at least the private colonies, so those who had proprietors, had their own sort of version of admiralty courts. And that's, you know, and for a long time, England kind of let them do their own thing because they, like I said, they were preoccupied and didn't really know the depth of corruption. And so once, uh, people like the Earl of Bellamont come and are stated that their their goal in the colonies, they are sent to the colonies specifically to root out this corruption and to get rid of the pirates. That's when we start to see a shift in legal thinking as well in the sense that England is like, we need to bring these pirates, these criminals to England so that they are properly tried and the idea behind that was that they wouldn't have any friends in the community who would then serve on the jury who would then let them go. Did the British government make any effort at, say, amnesties or pardons uh, to try to end piracy? They did. They did. There, there were several different uh, proclamations of uh, to eradicate piracy throughout this uh, general time period. And most of them had a, a caveat, a uh, statement that would tell pirates, if you turn yourself in within this time frame, you will receive the king's pardon and you will be forgiven. And as long as you don't do it again, you'll be fine. Uh, and of course, a lot of pirates took advantage of those pardons and 
once they received them, many of them just turned right around and went back to piracy. Um, Blackbeard, I think, was one of those who who obtained or was uh, going to obtain uh, a pardon uh, with the full intention of continuing uh, piracy. And at some point, the governments tried to hide or or um, sort of keep people from knowing about that caveat, um, trying to say that the caveat was expired or something. And so uh, it was kind of designed to allow them to punish as they wanted to. Um, and so, but pardons were definitely a, a very important aspect of this attempt to eradicate piracy, uh, kind of a tough love version now, we've talked about uh, British pirates operating out of Philadelphia and New York and venturing out uh, to attack other countries. Did French pirates, for example, prey upon English ships in the Delaware Bay in the Mid-Atlantic region? Yeah, one of the most famous was uh, a French pirate named Lavous or uh, Olivier Levasseur, and he was well known to frequent the Chesapeake in the Mid-Atlantic area. And uh, part of the reason he was so attracted to that area, especially the Chesapeake, was that uh, to get into the Chesapeake Bay and to these port uh, ports in the colonies of Virginia and Maryland that were very um, productive or uh, where they could do the most business, it, you were funneled into it. There was only one route to get in and out of the Chesapeake Bay. And so this was just prime hunting ground for men like Levasseur or Labuse, who were able to use that bottlenecking to their advantage. Now, in your book, uh, there are several Howard Pyle paintings of pirates. Uh, who is Howard Pyle? Why did you select these paintings? Well, primarily I selected them because they were free. <laughs> so uh, open access. But also, they're just very interesting characterizations of pirates to me. They sort of reflect people's uh, stereotypes of pirates and sort of encapsulates this idea that they dressed a particular way or that they looked a particular way. Uh, and it just kind of lends itself to this sort of almost the early disnifying of pirates and, and romanticizing them in a way that will um, become incredibly popular as time moves forward. Now, another pirate that you write about is Black Sam Bellamy. Who is he? Black Sam Bellamy is a Massachusetts boy, and he, the his early life is a little uh, unclear, but the basic story is that he falls in love with a young woman uh, named Maria Hallett, and he wants to marry her, but he is just a lowly sailor, very penny, you know, basically the penniless sailor stereotype, and her parents are like, absolutely not. So they, of course, have a secret love affair. She gets pregnant, and he decides um, that he's going to go and make his fortune by fishing the Spanish treasure wreck off the coast of Florida in 1715. And this was a very well-known wreck, millions of pieces of eight, all sorts of uh, treasure just right there, right for the taking. And he decides if he can make his fortune, her parents will change her mind. And he and his partner, Palsgrave Williams, that's what they do initially is go to fish this wreck. They quickly realized, though, that every other person in the Atlantic world had heard about that wreck. And so it was 
you know, very overwhelmed by people. Uh, also, the Spanish trying to prevent people from taking their uh, silver. And so ultimately, they kind of turned to their crews and just kind of turned pirate from there. And at one point, he steals uh, a slave ship, the Witta, and uses that as sort of his flagship. And it is when he is trying to come back to uh, Cape Cod with a lot of, of his loot uh, to marry Maria that they're caught in a nor'easter and are unable to get out of it. And I think all but six men on board died, including Bellamy. And uh, those who, you know, washed ashore and survived were captured and uh, tried. Uh, and I don't recall if all of them were hanged or just a few of them, but it was kind of a sad end for a guy who was pirating for love. So uh, not everybody is a pirate forever. So were there retired pirates in Pennsylvania? They maybe become farmers or some other business? Yeah, I'm trying to think of some names off the top of my head, but there were many retired pirates. The, the fact is that most pirates are only pirating for maybe one or two ventures. The turnover on a pirate ship was, I mean, it was frequent turnover. And so a lot of them would get their loot uh, and come back. They would pay off debts or they would establish families or they would um, be able to kind of get themselves financially secure and just return to life as it was before piracy. Um, and so the idea of the pirate being a pirate till they're killed uh, is, not sort it's not the norm now uh for a pirates operating out of new york and philadelphia was was that that considered a business venture or did you have like merchants investing in these operations that were going to the indian ocean yes uh, i mentioned frederick phillips earlier uh, he was one of those merchants who was very heavily involved in investing money and resources into pirate ventures uh, but there are a number of uh, very prominent merchants in that general area who found piracy to be a lucrative, albeit risky, venture to just further enhance their profits. And Phillips had so much money. I think Phillips Manor, he had hundreds and hundreds of acres uh, of property, which is kind of unusual in that area. Um, you know, most people don't own that much land in that area of New York. So um, they found it to be very lucrative. So as uh, your book also talks about some of the privateering that went on during wars like the French and Indian War and the American Revolution, uh, did pri privateering change from the time, say, the 1690s? Did it become more formalized by the time you get in the later 1700s? I think it had always been fairly formal in not necessarily practice, but in uh, design. I do think that by the time we get to the revolutionary era um, that we start to see more of an emphasis on making it more uh, legitimate. I know that during the American Revolution, or it would be later, but uh, for example, uh, James Madison, I think it was uh, War of 1812, he signed every single letter of Mark personally. Um, and so we sort of see that being established uh, when the we didn't have really a Navy um, because we're 
uh, technically subjects of England. And so privateering was very important and being legitimate meant that you were less likely to be tried as a pirate uh, and more likely to be treated as a prisoner of war, which you were far less likely to die as a prisoner of war than you were if you were a pirate. So during the revolution, you mentioned that when the British took control of New York City, uh, they authorized privateering. So did you have loyalist privateers and, and rebel privateers? Yes, that it, and it got really confusing for people because these are your friends, these are your neighbors, and until you know you're just out there and now you see well they're a loyalist i'm a you know patriot and you didn't necessarily know who was who for a while but it was a very important aspect of that maritime conflict um, and it didn't just happen in the the mid-atlantic it was very prominent in the chesapeake as well where loyalists are sort of trying to create these enclaves uh to help the british come in and in doing so they sort of push a lot of the uh, patriot privateers out but then that enables the patriot privateers to focus their efforts specifically on british shipping and kind of hurting them financially as opposed to trying to injure them militarily when a privateer captured a ship during a war like the revolution what did they do with it did they could they do anything that they wanted to with it Generally, no. They were supposed to, by their commission, enter the nearest friendly port. And at that port, they would then uh, have the ship evaluated to determine whether or not it was a legal prize. So uh, if there was an admiralty court or whoever the um, person operating that uh, harbor would evaluate it. And then it would go to the, either the governor or to the council, and they would then determine uh, from there how that loot would then be divvied up. Generally, there was a percentage established that a certain percentage would go to the ship owners, a certain percentage would be given to the crew to divvy amongst themselves, and then a certain percentage would be left for the government. And this was a way for them to bring in uh, money to the government that they're missing desperately. And so it was a very important financial component when it came to conflict. So in, in wars like the French and Indian War and the American Revolution, did privateering have a significant strategic impact? I don't know that it had strategic impact in the sense of deterring or interfering with um, Royal Naval vessels, for example, because most privateer ships, the, the idea is that they are private ships. And so they tended to be smaller. They tended to be basically like merchant ships who just got heavily gunned. Um, and so they recognized very early that they weren't able, at least on their own, to take on a, a warship. Um, but they did develop certain strategies to try to come together to divert the Royal Naval vessels from areas. I know, for example, in the Chesapeake, that uh, some of the privateers worked to block off certain areas to prevent the ships from being able to come in to certain areas. Because the warships are so large, they were limited to what areas they could or couldn't uh, sail through. 
And then the rest of it was really economically focused. They, they felt that if they hurt the English or the British at their pocketbook, that it would eventually draw them away, that they needed the financial uh, aspect to continue their empire. So they felt like at some point, the British will just give up and they'll just leave us alone. And so that was kind of the privateer strategy. And of course, a number of them were former pirates. And so it was also kind of personal for them that they wanted to make money, um, but also do a little damage to a nation that had uh, demeaned them or um, made them out to be enemies of all nations for, for the recent past. So during the American Revolution, when Philadelphia was the capital of, of this new emerging nation, uh, were, were people becoming wealthy by financing privateering expeditions? They were, and that was very concerning to some people. I know that, uh, I believe it was Benjamin Franklin, was really concerned about the impact that privateering might have in that because it's such a lucrative uh, venture, he felt that it would very easily fall back into piracy. And he was one of those who wanted, when it came time to the Articles of Confederation and then the Constitution, who wanted to put in there a either a clause or something that prohibited privateering in the new nation. Um, but Benjamin Franklin was uh, outnumbered in his dissent. And uh, a lot of people felt that privateering was necessary to this burgeoning nation because there isn't a very strong naval presence. Then how do you protect such a length of coastline uh, if you don't have a navy? Um, I know George Washington was very adamant that privateers were a very important military component to uh, protecting America's interests. You say in the book that uh, perhaps one of the most audacious privateers of the American Revolution was William Treen of Pennsylvania. What made him so audacious? He just had no fear, and he did not care uh, about uh, the potential um, damages. He was, he was just, he was willing to put himself and uh, essentially his entire crew into the path of danger if it meant uh, securing his objective. And so a lot of times he would come in and out of the uh, British blockade of a harbor. That was very dangerous and uh, not always successful. A number of people tried to break through the blockades and found themselves uh, captured. And so the fact that he just went for it anyways, uh, that's kind of why he's sort of known as very audacious. Um, he was also very successful. So I, I think the audacity worked for him. Once the Continental Navy was established during the revolution, uh, were privateers in the Navy competing for sailors? They were. Uh, and this was another concern for those who were kind of anti-privateer. They felt that because privateering had the opportunity for better financial return, uh, and more freedom of movement that it drew sailors away from the Continental Navy and that it was hurting the Continental Navy's ability to either um, obtain new recruits or to maintain the recruits they already had. 
Um, so that was definitely a conflict between these two different groups. And I think part of that too is that for those who had experience in the Royal Navy, uh, maybe didn't trust that the Continental Navy would treat them any differently at first. And so they would turn to privateering instead. Now you also say in the book that privateering during the American Revolution also had an impact on enslaved and free black men. Unlike the Continental Army, the Navy was more than willing to recruit both free and enslaved black men. Uh, what impact did that have on, on the Navy at the time? Well, it was very helpful to the Navy in the sense that it it brought in more men. Uh, so more people, the more effective you can be in terms of um, managing your ship and uh, you know achieving your objectives. And so, it, and it's kind of different depending on where you are too, as to how accepting these uh, crews were uh, when it came to free and enslaved black men. But it was also very, I think, eye-opening for a number of people who maybe had never met or uh, known anybody who had been enslaved uh, to see a different side of this concept of labors. Like for them, uh, especially in the American Revolution, we have this language that the uh, patriots are using that the English or the British have enslaved them. And they use this term enslavement and calling themselves slaves a lot. And I think for some people, they realized, well, maybe we're not so much enslaved as we are oppressed. Uh, language matters. And, um, but I, you know, we, we only have limited data on, on how people felt, so. Uh, were privateers treated as prisoners of war? Most of the time, I think they were. And I think part of that in the American Revolution is because the British wanted to maintain the colonies. And if they had treated these privateers as pirates, I think that that would have been further fuel to the fire of revolution. And so by treating them as prisoners of war, the hope, I think, was that when they retrieved their colonies from rebellion, uh, they would still have they would have these men who were who would view the government as lenient or or more accepting than if they had been hanged as pirates. So uh, were black sailors on privateering ships, were they at risk of being sold into slavery if they were captured? Yes, this was a tremendous risk for black men, um, not just former like those who were enslaved, who either escaped or who were um, used in the stead of um, other people, but uh, also for free blacks, if they were captured, their status would be denied. It, it would be believed uh, that their free papers had been forged or, or what have you. And so they were at great risk for being sold or resold into slavery. And especially for a number of these uh, black men coming from the mid-Atlantic or, or even further north to then end up enslaved in say the Caribbean or in the South, it was a very challenging situation. And I think it takes tremendous courage to, to risk that, but it's also a very important insight into what freedom meant for these individuals, that they were willing to risk that in the hopes that 
having the revolution be a success might then further lead to freedom broadly, which would include them. So I think it was a risk, but it was a calculated risk. Uh, well, I just want to talk a little bit about the bigger picture here. How, how did you become interested in studying piracy? Um, everybody always asks, uh, and they assume that I've loved pirates since I was a child. But really, when I was growing up, I was very interested in history, but I thought I was going to become a medical doctor. See how all that worked out. Um, but I never really had any notion of pirates. I didn't watch anything that had pirates in it. I've never been to Disney, so I've never been on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, I know, for shame. So it wasn't until I was in graduate school, I was in my master's program, and I was doing my master's in public history. Uh, but as part of that, we had to take a number of traditional history courses, and one of those that I took was European imperialism. And for our final research paper, we could write about any aspect of imperialism. And in one of our books, I came across a quote that referred to Sir Henry Morgan as England's second Drake, um, basically saying he was just the reincarnation of uh, Sir, uh, Sir Francis Drake. And I thought that that was a very odd comparison, just given the, the span of time difference and just the geopolitical differences uh, between the two men. And so I wanted to look more into that. And that became my writing sample for PhD programs. And the woman who had become my advisor, she asked, you know, have you thought about writing about pirates for your dissertation? And I was like, that's an option. And she was like, yeah. And I was like, well, I'm in. And I've just been with pirates ever since, but there was no precursor to it. It just kind of happened. Now, there's, there's a lot of myths surrounding pirates and a, a lot of great stories and legends, but is there something about pirates that you discovered that, that you really wish people knew about? I don't know that I've discovered anything that I wish people knew about, um, but there are myths and tropes that I think I wish more people understood because it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, the first being... Uh, the burying of the treasure. And I mean, we've made the History Channel and others have made entire shows about, you know, trying to find buried pirate treasure. And the reality is that very few it, pirates ever bury treasure. And part of that is because very few pirates ever had treasure uh, to bury. They had commodities that they needed to sell to get money. So it wouldn't have made a lot of sense to say bury a cask of wine or, or a you know, bolts of linen. Uh, the other is that I think burying treasure would be very challenging in the sense that uh, you would have to trust the people who are with you who know where it's buried to not go back and get it behind your back, uh, to trust that it wouldn't somehow be discovered by some random person. And it also doesn't do you a lot of good if it's in the ground. So, um, I think that's one myth or trope that, that usually stands out. And the one that it's historians kind of go back and forth on, but we don't have any evidence really to support either way is the eye patch. The idea that pirates would wear eye patches so that when they would go up and down from top, uh, from above deck to below deck, they would have one eye always ready for the dark. And I mean, that's, 
plausible, kind of true. Um, but at the same time, your depth perception is way off. So I can imagine you would fall down the stairs a lot. And I mean, who is out there just making eye patches for everyone? It, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. And we don't have really any evidence either way. So I, I would imagine those who are wearing eye patches probably didn't have an eye. Well, we've been talking about the book Pirates and Privateers from Long Island, Long Island Sound to Delaware Bay. Yeah, Jamie Goodall, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Enjoying this podcast? Visit PCNTV.com to find out how to support our mission. PCN is a 501c3 nonprofit television network. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.